you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Hope you can stay afterwards and enjoy the potluck with us. Uh, As a a kid, uh, I decided that potluck should be national holidays. It's a great opportunity to uh, sample all kinds of food and have a good time. So please stay after church. Even if you didn't bring anything, that's fine. Uh, We'd love to have you stay. If you would stand with me, please. Uh, And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of Luke uh, 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He sent off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He had spent everything. There was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants had food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come, speak to us, settle upon us, speak deep in our hearts about how you feel about lost people, about lost sinners, how you desire to draw them to yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we evaluate how we view people that are a mess, so to speak, and how you see them with love and compassion and pursuing grace. I ask that your anointing would flow through me now that what should be said may be said. What she would deleted, may that be deleted. And may your people grow deep in your word and be drawn to Jesus in fresh new ways. And may we give that away to a lost and broken and hurting world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in Luke 15, we have three lost things. Uh, and you can see from the title... We got a lost sheep, we got a lost coin, and we got a lost son. And I've intentionally said plural with the sons there because there's two sons that are lost here, okay? Uh, yes, one went out and did some terrible things and wasted his father's inheritance, and he was lost. He came to his senses, and I believe that's really a symbol or a picture of the Holy Spirit getting someone's attention in a dark situation and, and, and bringing change. But the older brother that was the, quote, good, moral older brother, did everything right, uh, I want to offer to you was just as lost uh, as the younger brother, okay? Just as lost in his good behavior, his moralistic pride, his... You know, the way he lived, which uh, on a surface level, you would say, well, he did all the right stuff. He was a good, responsible uh, son, okay? And we're going to find out in a little bit uh, uh, that he was just as lost as the prodigal who went out and did terrible things. It's important for us to see the uh, audience that Jesus is speaking to here, okay? It looks like we have a mixed gathering, shall we say. In verse 1, we have tax collectors and sinners, okay, and they are all gathered around to hear Jesus. Now, Jesus was criticized at times 
for hanging out with a loose crowd, shall we say, okay, with rough people, with people that were outside of the scope, shall we say, of the religious folks and their religious expectations. Jesus at times hung out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and people that uh, in our eyes, I suppose, we would say they are a mess. And he was criticized for that, okay? So we've got tax collectors and sinners in the audience. And then in verse 2, it says we have Pharisees and teachers of the law. So we got two groups here. One people, they're struggling with all kinds of, quote, moral issues, maybe we could say. And then over here, we have people that are religious, that do everything right. Uh, and they're in this audience, okay? And what is their complaint? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, okay? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had very strict code of what righteousness was and how you should follow uh, the Old Testament uh, law, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, typically called the Pentateuch, okay? And they studied that their whole lives long and decided this is what you do if you are righteous and acceptable to God. Okay, and they bent over scrupulously to study that, of course, and then they taught that, okay? And unfortunately, what they did in their religious zeal and fervor is they missed the heart of God for lost people. They missed the compassionate heart of the Father who wants to restore people to themselves. We were talking in the membership class this morning about Adam and Eve sinning in the Garden of Eden. And then it says that God goes after them and follows them and says, where are you? To me, one of the most touching lines in the Bible of the father who says to people who have sinned, he's not saying, well, I'm done with you now, you big screw ups. He's going after them, wanting to restore them a compassionate heart for that and wanting to draw them back to himself. And we see that all throughout the Bible and the Pharisees missed it, okay? If you would look at your outline there, okay? Because to understand these three stories, we have to talk for a moment about what a parable is. And I suppose maybe this is familiar ground for many of us, but I think it's helpful to review it for just a moment. Okay, the Greek word for parable is parabole, okay, and in quotes there, and it really means a comparison or an illustration, okay? So Jesus is teaching a spiritual truth about God or what God is like or his character or whatever the case may be, and that he's using a common daily illustration to get people thinking, Okay, and one of the commonest ones that we know often is, is the parable of the sower and the seeds and the soils. The sower throws out seeds. The seeds are an illustration of God's word. The seed lands in soil. The soil is an illustration of the hearts of people, okay? And there's different types of soils. Some have weeds, some have rocks, some are dry and hard, okay? And it's all a picture, an agricultural picture of spiritual growth, okay? Many times people can give their life to Christ, say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins coming to my heart, but for a variety of reasons, Okay? The seed doesn't grow. Birds come and pick up the seed. Weeds choke out it. There's no fertilizer. There's no, no nutrients in the soil. And they're all pictures of the human heart. 
Okay? So God is looking at your heart and looking at my heart and said, you've heard the word of God. Is it growing? Are you going to cultivate it? Okay, so we come to Christ in the beginning. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. We're born again. And then after that, we decide by our own decision, I want to grow in my faith. I want to remove weeds from my life. I want to fertilize the word of God with, 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 with uh, what this book says, with worship, with prayer, with fellowship with other Christians, because I want to grow so that seed is in the ground and I'm going to feed that seed, okay, with spiritual growth, with, with spiritual disciplines, if you will, so that I can grow. So one of the commonest parables uh, that we see in uh, 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 the New Testament A parable is meant to provoke the mind into active thought. Okay? Active thought. There's nothing worse when you're speaking than looking out there and looking and seeing someone and you think, they're not hearing what I'm saying. That's why communication is so exhausting. Do you ever try to communicate with a teenager and you got the idea that it went in one ear and went out the other? You're not communicating or they're not listening, or it's not landing inside, okay, to bring change, okay? Communication, one human being to another, a parent to a teenager, uh, a person that knows Jesus to a person that doesn't know Jesus. Communication is really complex and difficult. That's why I always pray, Holy Spirit, you work. Okay, I'm just a human being. And I've studied and I convey it best I can verbally, but your Holy Spirit has to dig deep inside of them. Okay? That's why in the book of Hebrews it talks about uh, the word of God dividing soul and spirit. Joints and marrow is a discerner of the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God, aided by the Holy Spirit, can seek deep inside of us and do something inside. I've told you about my friend Paul Miller on the East Coast in our first church, shared the gospel with him for years and years and years, okay? He was a a nice man. He was a moral man. He was a successful businessman. He was respected in the community. And it literally landed on hard ground for years and years and years and years, okay? And then one time I invited him to an evangelistic crusade. He stood up at the altar call and walked to the front. The Holy Spirit did that because the Holy Spirit did something inside of him and he came to the conclusion, I need Jesus. It was, it's incredible. It's absolutely beautiful. A heart was changed, not by fancy arguments. I tried that and I suppose I'm sure God used that, but eventually the Holy Spirit did something and he repented of his sins and gave his life uh, to Jesus, okay? Look at the next blank in your outline there. A parable finds a similarity between a common item and a spiritual reality. Jesus comes to convey the compassion of the Father. Jesus comes in uh, flesh and blood, the word made flesh, to convey who he is and what he's gonna do to die on the cross for our sins. And that he's going to rise from the dead. And that he's coming again. Okay, so he conveys that with physical earthly terms that we can understand. Folks, in your evangelism, in your sharing of the gospel, the best thing you can tell people is how Jesus has changed your life. This is the way my life was. 
This is the way it is now. You are flesh and blood right in front of the person and you can say, Jesus has changed my life. He's real. This is the change, okay? So important. So you want to use common items uh, to, to explain the gospel and spiritual realities. Okay, the genius of the parables of Jesus is that the active listener learns to think and apply spiritual truth. Friends, sometimes in our desire to convey who Jesus is, we, we can almost be like a machine gun giving people, oh, this is what it is, this is what it is, this is what it is. And I think there's a place for that. We certainly have strong biblical uh, definitions about sin and about the cross and what the Bible says about all these things. There is a time, shall I say, and I think we see it in the ministry of Jesus, where parables trigger people's thinking and get them to engage what's being said. Okay? Hmm, what does it mean, a seed in soil? Hmm, what does it mean, all these things, okay? Because we want people to have an encounter with Jesus, and our story aids that, and then we want them, uh, when they come to Christ, to go out into the world and to be able to think for themselves about what the gospel is, and who Jesus is, and what the cross does, okay? Now, in Awanas, we're real clear. We sit there with those kids and say, this is what sin is. This is who God is. This is what Jesus did. And we lay that out there and we encourage kids to memorize those verses. But you know what? We also at one point want those kids to get to the place where they think for themselves and read this book. I came to a point in my life where I said in my first year of Bible college, am I a Christian because this is all I've ever known? I've been in church all my life. I've eaten more church cookies than you could ever imagine. But I was 19 or 20 and I said, is this is what I believe for myself? Now every person who grows up in church is gonna to come to that point, I think, or at least they should, do I believe this for myself? Am I convinced this is true? Do the claims of Jesus Christ stand on their own or have I just mindlessly swallowed it? Okay? And a parable helps, I believe, in that as far as active engagement with spiritual truth. Look at verse 3, okay? So Jesus has this audience. There's tax collectors. There's sinners out there. But there's Pharisees and teachers of the law who are very critical of them. So he dives into three parables, okay, about something that's lost. And where this is going, I think you already know, is that the Father is pursuing lost people. And he would like us to have the same attitude as he does about lost people. So we see that conveyed in these three stories, okay? Interesting at the end of, uh, look at verse 3. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Okay, so we have a shepherd standing at a gate, counting one, two, three, all the way up to 99 to see that all of his sheep are in. Now, my friend Jim Morris tells me that sheep like to die. So I'm sure many times with lost sheep, you figure if they're stuck out in the field or on the hill overnight, they're going to get killed. They're going to die. They can't survive. They're almost uh, completely helpless, it would seem. Okay? 
But this is a good shepherd and he's pursuing that lost sheep and wants to go uh, find it. So the natural reaction is you go find it. And then look at these words here in verse 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. You can under word joyfully if you like. Okay? And hence we have a whole history of Christian art and sculpture and, and, and movies and whatnot with this beautiful picture of a shepherd pursuing a lost sheep, finding it stuck in the thicket, finding it maybe surrounded with predators, grabbing it and carrying it home. And there's joy in that rescue. Can I tell you something? The Pharisees have no joy in the rescuing of a lost sinner. In fact, as one Bible scholar had studied some of the rabbis, and this is what he says about their attitude. William Barclay, the commentator, dug up this quote from some of their writings. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. Now, it's hard to believe that someone would believe that. Okay? But Jesus is looking at this audience who is thinking, unclean, wretched sinners. They need to burn. They're worthless. They need to be destroyed. That is their attitude. And Jesus is saying, I got something different in mind. I got something different in mind. We're going to find that lost person. We're going to pull that lost person out of the mess that they're in. We're going to bring them back. They're going to experience love and compassion and grace and be brought back into the fold so that everybody's in. And I'm sure those Pharisees looked at him and were like aghast. Okay? They were stuck in their religious pride, their performance, all the good things they did. They didn't understand it. They were furious at his behavior and the people he hung out with. Okay? because he was conveying the heart of God that they did not understand at all. Mark 2.15 and Mark, Matthew 11.19. Okay, in Matthew 11.19, Jesus is called a friend of sinners. What a phenomenal statement. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He hangs out with people that are rough, okay, that need a savior. As an incarnational reality, flesh and blood of the love of God, okay, there's no holier than thou. There's no self-righteousness. There, oh no, you look at what a mess you are. There's like, we're going to convey the compassion of God. We're going to be a friend of sinners. Next blank in that middle section, or the first blank, the Pharisees in the audience were critical of Jesus' friendly approach towards sinners. Okay? The next blank, there is rejoicing. When a lost coin and a lost sheep are found. Beautiful picture. Can you imagine heaven celebrating and singing and exploding with praise as the Holy Spirit works here on the earth and breaks through all the barriers in people's minds and his heart and then a person rejoices? I've told you a zillion times the picture of people responding to an altar call and going forward at a Billy Graham crusade is the most beautiful picture in all the universe. People saying, I need Jesus. When my friend Paul Miller went forward and I sat on the platform and saw him, I was overcome. 
Holy Spirit, you've broken into his pride, his good, quote, morality. He sees that he needs a savior and he's giving his life to Christ. That is what heaven is like. And yet we have religious, self-righteous people on earth looking at lost sinners in a very different uh, way. There is rejoicing when a lost coin and a lost sheep are found. Likewise, when a sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. Look at verse 7. Okay, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Righteous people, quote unquote, who do not need to repent. Friends, we all need repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. Okay? I said in the membership class this morning, the gospel is merely one beggar telling another beggar how they found food. Friends, we are all beggars for the grace of God. Needing salvation, needing to be born again, needing to walk with Jesus, okay? There's no room for self-righteous religion and being impressed with our morality. Absolutely not, okay? And I hope we're a church that's not like that, that we welcome people that need Jesus. Welcome people that need a listening ear. Welcome people that have walked a dark, painful road in this broken, messed up world and just come and say, wow, those people loved me. Those people cared about me. Those people listened to me. There was no judgment, okay? We don't do that. We just tell them this is who Jesus is. Look back at your outline if you would. God wants everyone to be saved and 1 Peter 3, that's verse 9, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we have a lost coin. We have a lost sheep, okay? When the lady finds the coin, she rejoices. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you see what happens again and again? We got a comparison the critical self-righteousness of the Pharisees, yet rejoicing when the sheep is found, yet rejoicing when the coin is found. And now there's going to be rejoicing, at least from most of the people, when the lost son comes home. Look what it says in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Okay. We know the story well, I believe, but in Acts 13 and 14, he goes off, he spends it all, he wastes it on wild living, okay? And then a problem comes, the money's gone. Doesn't the party go on till the money's gone? Okay, then we got a problem. We got a famine, we got severe need, okay? He hires them out to an owner of pigs, okay? In a Jewish audience, this would have been absolutely disgraceful, okay? But when you're hungry, you'll do anything you can to get something uh, to eat, okay? And verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the, the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's hungry, he's cold, he's out of money, the party's over, and he is alone with pigs. And no one gives him anything. And in verse 17, you could, if you like, circle the word senses. 
I sat with a man many, many years ago whose uh, son was addicted to drugs. He was from back east. His son has somehow wound up here in Scott Valley. And he pleaded and begged and worked with his son for months and months to try to get him to go to rehab, to get things straightened out, and his son wouldn't do it. He was caught up in, a, in a, just a destructive lifestyle. And he sat in my office many, many times, and I quoted to him this verse. Okay? And I said, your son has not come to the end of himself yet. And the Holy Spirit has not yet shaken his senses to the point where he realizes, do I really want to live like this? He later moved away. I don't know what happened to him, okay? But uh, there's many situations, as you and I both well know, uh, such as this, where we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. And we sometimes wonder, God, are you hearing my prayers? Where are you? Please intervene, okay? And uh, we see God doing that in this situation. Look at, he comes to his senses, and he imagines his father's house, okay? And he runs back. Verse 18, or maybe he walks back. I will set out and go back to my father's house and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This next section is so beautiful. It's just amazing. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son. Many of you were here many years ago when Roger Williams, uh, the president of Mount Hermon at that time, came and preached the longest sermon I've ever heard about the prodigal son. It was phenomenal. But he described the fact that this would have been very uh, 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 um, unacceptable for a father to run towards a wayward son. Okay? He would have to have pulled up his robe. He would have run down. And it says he was filled with compassion. I'm reminded of Roger telling us in that sermon, I believe, of mentoring a retired NFL football player in the Bay Area for many years. And the retired player was a huge man. I think, as I recall, around 300 pounds. Huge, big man, was retired, but had made a lot of bad decisions in his life. And Roger sat with this man and described the tears running down his face of repentance over the life he had lived, but also of marveling at the grace of God and his forgiveness. Friends, this is the Father. This is the way the Father is. Drawing people to himself. The Bible says God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Do we have strong biblical convictions about sin and what's right and wrong? Of course we do. But we always remember the Father wants restoration and drawing people to himself, and that's what he does. So he's home, he's enjoying the Father's compassion, there's a party, this is a beautiful Hallmark card, you would think, wow, this is a movie with a happy ending, we're going to celebrate as we can see in verse 23 and 24, is everything good? No, there's something rotten in Denmark. A religious, self-righteous, older brother who is missing the compassion of God. And look what it says. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
He answered his father, look at what I have done. Look at how I've behaved. Look at how I've served you. I've worked, I've slaved, I've never disobeyed your orders. Okay, but verse 30, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home and you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice he does not even address the father as father. He does not even say, this is my brother. He is so mad in his self-righteous religious arrogance, he's like withdrawing and saying, this is not the way it works. And I can imagine the Pharisees looking at that and saying, he needs to die, this younger son. He needs to be punished. He needs to pay for what he has done. Friends, the grace of God will blow your mind again and again and again and again, if you let it. Look what happens. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we, have to, we had to celebrate and be glad. This brother of yours was dead, is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Look at that last section there. The younger son wasted his inheritance, but came to his senses. The older brother was just as lost. Do you get that? That older brother did everything right. Good, nice, moral boy, did everything right, was just as lost in his self-righteous pride and arrogance as the younger brother who was out making a mess of his life. Both of them missed the grace of God at that moment. The younger brother comes to his senses and comes home. The older brother is still stuck there. And it's a sad story because at the end we see no conclusion. We see no recognition from the older brother. Oh, I get it now. It's good that little brother came home. No, it just ends with this father pleading with them. Can you see that we had to celebrate? The older brother was just as lost in his moral behavior, religious pride and anger. The older brother was more concerned about a lost inheritance than a relationship with his father or brother. The older brother was a Pharisee in that he refused to rejoice in a repentant sinner who had come home. Let me read you this verse. In the Old Testament, you could write it down. It's not on your outline. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. You know the story. God spoke to Jonah, said, go to Nineveh. Tell them to repent. Tell them to turn from sin. And this is what it says in Jonah chapter 4. Because amazingly enough, they do repent. They do turn to the Savior. After they repent, Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong that God would forgive them and relent from destroying the city. And he became angry. He was an older brother, really. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. He's so mad that God forgave them. <laughs> It's like, God, just kill me. 
This is not the way it should work. You should have destroyed Nineveh. But he recognizes that God's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I was listening to an interview the other day. Uh, a lady um, had gotten caught up in uh, 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 same-sex attraction issues as a teenager. Uh, she had no father, okay? And she wrote a book called uh, Gay Girl and Good God. And it was a profound testimony that she shared of coming to Jesus and repenting of that lifestyle and, and realizing that that was a destructive way to live and, and not the way God had created her. And she said, I was in church all my life. And I saw people that were, quote, really good. But I never really heard about face-to-face, -face, if you will, encounters with Jesus. And I just sort of looked at that, quote, good behavior in church and thought, wow, these people are really good at being good. They know how to behave. She got to a point where that destructive lifestyle was just overwhelming her and, and she just knew it was bad. And she was in her bedroom one night and she just kind of cried out to the Lord and said, God, I don't want to change. I don't want to follow you. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, just love me. Just love me. She said, I was born again that night and I came back to Jesus. She was working in a fast food restaurant a short time later, and she was there ringing up somebody's order, and she looked down the row, and she saw a, a, a woman that she felt sexually attracted to. And she'd given her heart to Christ, she was born again now, and she said, Jesus, help me, help me. I feel this impulse to reach out to her and have a relationship with her uh, and whatnot. And she said, Jesus answered that prayer. And I said, no, I'm not going to live that way anymore. She's very clear about repentance, very clear about sin, very clear about being born again and following Jesus. And I was so touched by her story. And it made me think of really us and our relationships here. Are we just putting on this mask of this is how a good person acts? Or are we truly being authentic with people and say, you know what, this has been my journey in life. And this is what happened when I encountered Jesus. And this is how it changed me. And Jesus is real. And we can be real with Jesus and each other about our journey and our mistakes and our flaws and still walk with Jesus. Now, you know as well as I do that this issue of sexuality is a volatile, supercharged issue in our culture. And my opinions, as you know, are what the Bible says about marriage and man and woman and all those things. But I believe with some wisdom we can go into this broken culture and say, this is what the Bible says. We love you. We care about you. We don't compromise about what the Bible says. But let's not be so good, quote, in our righteousness and, and morality and goodness that people don't see us as real people that are flawed that struggle like everybody else, but we still walk with Jesus and proclaim the gospel. Three lost things, a sheep, a coin, and a son. And the tragedy of it is this, the older brother never got it. 
Folks, let's get it. Let's rejoice in the grace of God. Let's go out into this fractured, broken, twisted, turbulent world, conveying grace, telling people that we're real people that struggle, but conveying the grace of God in this world because the grace of God changes people's lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your pursuing heart for lost people. And I pray that we would grab that heart for ourselves. Lord, our world is confused and mixed up. Many are calling good evil and calling evil good. And you said that's what would happen in these last days before your return. I pray that we would not be like the older brother or the Pharisees. We can convey to Jesus, convey to people what you have done to change our lives. May we do it with love, grace, and compassion. Having a listening ear to hear what people's story is, to be friends, to build relationships, to love people. I think that's what you want us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.